Today our reading is from the book of Romans, chapter 16, verses 3 through 16. Lord, please forgive me for butchering names. (laughs) (laughs) Romans 16, 3 through 16. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Jesus Christ, who risked their necks for my lives, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epineatus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampelaetus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Astrobolus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord of Tryphania and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Parasus, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Narasus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All of the churches of Christ greet you. This is the word of the Lord. Beautiful. That is not easy. Thank you for serving us well. The entire uh, volunteer team has been praying for Kirsten all morning uh, as when they found out that was her text. Uh, (laughs) And so if you haven't already, please meet uh, me in Romans chapter 16, uh, verse 3 through 16, which we've just heard read. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here at Church in the Square, and it is always good to open up God's Word uh, with you. Now, when we hear this letter read... We may miss the brilliance of it because it's just a list of people, isn't it? I mean, there's honestly, there are so many lists in the scriptures that I just pass over and go, well, that's just like a family tree, or this is just a list of highs and hellos. How could that shape and help me today in 21st century, November 2023, Chicago, right? And yet, I think there is some incredible brilliance here because one of the things that we notice when we do a little bit of digging into each of these names is how different all of these people are. You see, in this list, there are women and there are men. There are rich people and there are poor people. There are those with social clout and there are those who nobody knows. There are those who are slaves and those who are free. There are those who are Jewish and there are Gentiles. There's all kinds of different people, and Paul is writing to all of them by name. They're all together. They're all Christians. They're all part of the same network of house churches, that is, churches that met in homes uh, throughout Rome and first century Rome. And so Paul says, greet them all in the same way. How? With a holy kiss. It's, it's, there's beauty in that. There's intimacy in that. It's personal. And so I think this list begs a question, or perhaps a number of questions from us, like how? How in the world 
are all of these people, this diverse collection of people, how do they find themselves in the same spiritual family, in the same spiritual community, in the same city? I think we should ask ourselves the exact same question. How is it that all of these people, all of these people in this room and who make up Church in the Square and our various small groups that meet through the week, how is it that we as a diverse community in this city remain unified, remain healthy, and remain joyful in the midst of all of our differences, in the midst of all of the varying ways that we have come to Christ and that we inhabit this world and that we are people and have jobs and have parents and families and children and relationships and friendships and callings? How do we stay together? That's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about how we stay together in our diversity and even flourish in that. I think Paul gives us three things. He gives us three what I'm just going to call threads that hold together this church in Rome. And each thread, I think, helps us to see how God intends to make us, his people, powerfully one and yet also beautifully different. We see these threads, I think, in the way that Paul describes those he greets or the reason that Paul greets these particular people. You see, some of these folks, Paul says he worked with. Others of these folks are suffering just like Paul. And all of these people, Paul says, have found the same grace like him. So that's how we'll organize our time. We'll organize our time together this way. We'll look at the thread of our shared work, the thread of our shared suffering, and the thread of our shared grace. Our shared work, our shared suffering, in our shared grace, and hopefully we will see the beauty of a list. We'll see the power of 25 people whom Paul is simply saying hello to because why he knows them, because of why he is saying hello to them. So pray with me as we ask for the Lord's help. Heavenly Father, we do need just that. We need your help. If we're going to make heads or tails of a text written 2,000 years ago to a particular people at a particular time and yet inspired by your Spirit for all your people at all times, we're going to need your help. Um, And we want to be humble in that. Perhaps at the surface level we think that we have it figured out, or perhaps we read it and we are so overwhelmed and we don't have any idea what it's saying. Would you continue to keep us humble and curious? and faithful to not simply learn new things, but to allow your word to do what only your word can, which is to transform our hearts and minds. See, the writer of Hebrews reminds us that this is not a stagnant word, that your word is living and it's active. That means when we read it, it reads us back, that when we look to it for truth and for wisdom and for healing and help, you are a faithful God to use your word to do just that. And so we just simply say, here we are, help us. Would you correct our wrong thinking? Would you convict us in our wrong living? Would you heal us in our woundedness? Would you comfort us in our pain and our suffering? And in what divides us, Father, would you unite us? Would you help us to become more in the next 30 minutes or so, more of the people you're calling us to be in this city at this time? And as we are, your people, sons and daughters of a heavenly Father who loved us so much that you sent your only begotten Son to die in our place and for our sins. So would you shape us in accordance to your will and way today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, So the scriptures tell us that when you become a Christian, you become a new creation, and as a new creation, you get a new job. Did you know that? (laughs) That all of us in Christ have a responsibility. We have a calling. We have a new job 
in Christ. And Paul highlights this in particular to his greetings to who he calls Prisca, known elsewhere in the scriptures as Priscilla and Aquila. Look at verse 3. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks. Greet also the church in their house. Now, we know a little bit about Prisca and Aquila from various uh, different things, but in particular, we see that Paul calls them fellow workers. And did you hear that? It's similar to the way that he greets six other people in this list. If you look at verse 6 and then 9 and then 12, it says, Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved uh, Stachus, and gr- greet those also in verse 12, those workers in the Lord, Tryphanus and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Prissus, who has worked hard in the Lord. You see, what Paul is saying in between the lines with all of these different people that he's writing to are saying, greet them, say hello to them, I miss them, I love them. In this way, he's saying that our shared work unites us. Our shared work unites us. But what exactly is that work? What is the work that we do? What work is Paul referring to? And why does it unify an otherwise very different group of people? So well, we know a lot, actually, about Prisca or Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, Acts, 1 Corinthians both review much of their story. We can piece together who they are and what they did a little bit more than perhaps some of the rest in their connection with Paul's ministry. So meet me in Acts chapter 18. If you're in Romans 16, to the left, one book of the Bible— you get to the Gospels, go back to the right. Acts chapter 18, verse 1 and 3 is where we'll uh, first look. We'll get to know a little bit of the kind of work that Paul is saying that is shared, that unites them. He says, after this, Acts 18, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found uh, a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. Okay, so this couple lived in Rome, and they were forced to leave. And then as refugees, they began a new business of making tents, and Paul joins them in making this new business. And soon after, they moved to Ephesus. Now, this is interesting. When Paul calls them fellow workers in Romans 16, what comes to mind? It's likely like they're probably all preachers too, or they probably are all apostles too, or they're all planting churches too, or they're going everywhere telling everybody about Jesus, and man, they're probably really incredible people that are way better than everybody else. That's why he's talking to them. This is what we might suspect. We might naturally think that they're ministry leaders, apostles, prophets, teachers of the gospel, perhaps like Paul, but their shared work is actually a shared trade. Their ability to start a new business, in particular to make tents, a work that enables Paul and so many others to meet their basic needs and also also to carry the gospel to the far reaches of Asia Minor in the first century world. That's the work. Now, while they were in Ephesus, a Jewish Christian named Apollos came to town to preach the gospel. Watch this as Paul, or rather as God powerfully uses this young couple to uh, continue a different kind of work here in Acts chapter 18. Look at verse 26. 
It says, he began to speak, that's Apollos, boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. I love this so much. Essentially, Apollos comes to town. He's preaching the gospel. Priscilla and Aquila are in the audience or the congregation, and they are sitting there going, that, that actually is not right. That's not accurate. <laughs> That's not true. It sounds like Apollos doesn't have the full story. And so what do they do? They meet with him afterwards, and they fill him in. Likely what is going on is that Apollos only knows the baptism of John, and they are helping him understand Apollos, the baptism of Jesus, and what this idea of the kingdom is that Jesus came to bring. This is fascinating. Priscilla and Aquila are not the ones on the stage. They're not the ones who we would look at and go, those are ministry professionals. Those are the people who are really doing the work of the gospel. They are those behind the scenes doing the subtle work of correction, accountability, discipleship, and friendship. Priscilla and Aquila loved their preacher so much they were willing to correct him when he was wrong. Would we love each other that much? Would we love our elders, our deacons, and our small group leaders that much when they are wrong that we would not simply hold them at arm's length and go, oh my gosh, that's so bad. But we'd say, hey, can we do coffee? I, I'd love to help you see something I think you're missing. That's the giftedness. That's the work of Priscilla and Aquila. In other words, they're being Christians, <laughs> Right? There's nothing spectacular or glamorous about that. This is the work that Paul is talking about. Apparently, the shared work that Paul saw woven through the lives of the local church in first century Rome was less about the work itself than it was about the way that they saw their work connected to the kingdom of God. I think this is instructive for us. No matter what you do professionally to make a living, or how even you serve the local church, or you are gifted as a person, as a Christian. No matter what it is, our work is connected with one another. And I think there's a few things we ought to think about when we think about our work as Christians that I think probably informed the way that Paul understood what was going on in Rome and how we ought to understand our work today, especially as Christians who may have a tendency, you know, I, I know I can do this to myself as a professional preacher, as one who is um, in one of the words-based ministries, as we call it, it's easy to think that that is the kind of gospel work Paul is talking about. But my work in the public school, or my work as a stay-at-home parent, or my work as a bus driver, or my work in all of the various ways that we use our giftedness throughout the city, that's something else. That's something different. But that's not what the Scriptures teach us. You see, God gives dignity and gospel purpose to all types of work. Here are a few ways that I think we ought to think about our work to see how our work, again, unites us together as a diverse people. First, we need to see the work, what we'll just say, under the work. So the first aspect of our work, no matter what we do, is what we'll call what's going on under the work. Think about relationships with our colleagues, with our clients, with our vendors. That's Mary. Look at Mary in verse 6 in Romans chapter 16. If you're still in Acts 18, flip back to the right. It says, greet Mary who has worked hard for you. For you, she, remember, Paul is writing to the whole church, and she, he wants them to know that Mary has been thinking about you and the work that she has been doing. See, as followers of Jesus, we're always conscious of the people around us. I don't care what you do, there are people around you. Even, I know, you're like, well, we all work remotely, and we're alone in our dungeons and our rooms, right? We don't talk to anyone else, right? But in some respect, at some level, our work is affecting people, right? Even if you don't see them, even if they're just digitized, 
these days, even if you're not in the same room as them. Your work is affecting, and it is along with other people. And the follower of Jesus is constantly aware of the image of God with which they are impacting and working with, no matter what we do, that they are valuable, that they are worthy of love. Therefore, the way that we treat and interact with the people in our work, Paul is saying, that's the gospel work. That's the gospel work. Not only so, but we're invariably given opportunities, aren't we, to share the gospel perhaps with our colleagues when, they're, when life is really heavy on their shoulders or when something is going down with them, that they simply just ask a question and invite you to share how it is that you think and process and navigate life. And we do have opportunities to share the truth and beauty of Jesus in a more direct way, but that's not the only way. That is a way that we get to do the gospel work, but any way of the way that we foster and build relationships in our work is the work underneath the work. Secondly, there's a work through the work. And the second aspect of our work, again, no matter what we do, we'll simply call it through the work. It's about what we produce. It's about what we make. See, Priscilla and Aquila, they made tents. And I bet those were really good tents. I bet they were because they were able to develop a small business, a good reputation, and Paul's like, I want to be about that. I want to make something that helps to foster this gospel work that we are doing, not only in making tents, but also in starting new churches. This is the same, same thing that's true in all of our work. See, teachers shape lives and create environments of learning where curiosity is welcomed, where there is meaning and, uh, and joy that's found in the way that they are educated and learn. Bus drivers bring order and equality to a city that otherwise would have a chaotic mass transportation issue. You may think it's bad. Can you imagine if we didn't have some of these folks who were navigating the train system and who were organizing the bus routes and all of that? Clothing designers bring beauty. Grocery clerks make sure people get fed and so on. We could go to any kind of vocation and see how we produce and make things that have meaning that that is the gospel work through the work. Thirdly, there's a work above the work. Third aspect of our work, it's about our disposition. It's about our attitude. See, first we think about our relationships, then we think about what we produce, what we make in our work, and then we think about our heart posture. Again, this is irrespective of the kind of work that we do. That's the rest of this group. Notice how Paul, nearly every person that he talks about greeting because of their work, he qualifies with a statement like, in Christ or in the Lord. They are working in Christ. They have worked hard in the Lord. What's that mean? Well, the church in Rome had fully bought into this idea that in Colossians chapter 3, verse 23 and 24, says, whatever you do, work heartily as for who? The Lord, and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Some of us this is something we cling to every day because we literally hate our work, right? And maybe the people we work with, whoo, God help us, right? Get behind me, Satan, every single day. This may be where you just need to start. Lord, I want to be grateful for my job. Help me to just do this as an act of worship because this is hard. Maybe you're in a hard season vocationally and this is like all you can cling to right now. It's all gospel work. No matter what you're doing, you and I can do it as unto the Lord. Not so that our boss is pleased with us. Not so that we please the people around us and that all of these clients think that we're awesome. But you're like, today all I got is worship. All I got is to simply do this for the glory of God because I'm having a hard time seeing the point anywhere else. Right? So we have this purpose that is 
uh, under the work, we have this purpose that is through the work, and we have this purpose that is above the work. This is the thread that we notice of the work that Paul is talking about as he greets these men and women in Rome. And as we look throughout all of the scriptures, we get this uh, theology of vocation, if you will, this understanding of our work. We share the work that is under the work. No matter what you and I do, we are all meant as followers of Jesus to be mindful and attentive to the image of God that we work alongside and for and for their good. Not only so, but through the work. The things that we make should have integrity. The things that we make should be for a common good. The things that we make should be ultimately good things that bring beauty to this world and also above the work, that it's done with a worshipful attitude, that it's done in such a way to bring God glory and not ourselves, no matter what we do. You see that all of that, no matter what we do, actually unites us. We can relate to that in small group. I may have no idea. If you work with an Excel spreadsheet, your job is lost on me. I don't understand it, but we can sure share under the work, through the work, and above the work, can't we? You, you may work with a particular group base of people that you think nobody can really understand what my work is, and so how do I relate to my small group? We can talk about under the work, through the work, and over the work. We can all relate to that, and this is actually what draws us together. Dr. Tim Keller explains this in his great book, uh, Every Good Endeavor. He says, our daily work can be a calling only if it is uh, reconceived as God's assignment to serve others as God's assignment to serve others, no matter what you do. You may look at your job and think, how in the world could God be glorified in this? Well, if he gave you that job, he absolutely can be. If he gave you that work, it is meant to be a calling to serve others and glorify him. And this is what unites us, despite our differences. It's, it rather, it's, it's not even just despite them, rather, it's, it unifies us because they're different. When all of our work and our various giftedness and calling are done for the Lord and for the good of others, it brings unity to God's people. So Paul says, greet all those people in Rome and all the different jobs that they do, because all of that is the work of the gospel. All of that is the work of the gospel, and it's all making us one through relationships, through what we produce, and our posture in doing it. But work is not all that we share. See, as we work together and as we live together, invariably, as we build our life together in Chicago— as God's people, we invariably endure hardships together. We're going to suffer. And while our work, I think, makes us one and unified, our shared suffering, paradoxically, is what brings us healing. So our work unifies us and it makes us one, but our suffering is a way that God heals us. You see, in the midst of our pain, what are we tempted to do? We're tempted to isolate. We're tempted to separate from one another. And in fact, we believe that I need to remove myself from the group and heal and get back to my best self, and then I'll re-enter community. Then I'll come back into community. But as author and activist Bell Hooks warns, she says, rarely if ever are any of us healed in isolation. She says, healing is an act of communion. So in order to heal and embody wholeness, my sisters and brothers, we need each other. That's really hard. Because my suffering, my pain, my discomfort always want, tells me to hide, tells me to remove myself. And many of you, I look out at some of you and think about others in our community. You are living this in an exemplary way. That in the midst of your deepest and darkest sorrows and suffering, you have been willing to not just step into the light, but walk in it and be seen in your brokenness and be seen in your undoneness, being seen in your process. Is there anything harder 
than coming to your group and feeling like you don't got it together and you're like, I don't have a bow on this. I'm just angry. Would you pray for me? I don't even know why I'm angry. I might even be angry at all of y'all. I don't even know, but I'm just angry today. I don't have a good, and then the Lord met me in it and everything is okay and here I am today. You don't have that. You just got anger. You just got sadness. You just got that melancholy. You know that melancholy? You're like, I just feel like, that's, that's me. When you show up in that, when you show up in the midst of the pain of death, of loss, of sickness, this is, I think, what Paul is getting at. See, that's the second thread, the thread of shared suffering. Notice Prisca and Aquila, they're not only fellow workers, but look again at verse 4, the very beginning of it. He says, you risk your lives, you risk your necks in Acts chapter 18 when there was a riot that broke out in Ephesus. Paul preached the gospel, and people didn't like it. And instead of just coming after Paul, they came after any of the Christians that they could find. But they're not the only ones. Paul also greets another couple, Andronicus and Junia. Look at uh, verse 7. It says, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Paul says they're not only fellow workers, but they're fellow prisoners. They're people who have also endured affliction, unjust treatment, religious persecution at the hands of powerful Jewish authorities, just like he had. And he's saying this somehow ties them together. Now, when it comes to considering our suffering and comparing suffering and talking about suffering holistically, you have to be really, really careful. Many of you have actually taught me this and helped me to see this. See, because what most of us endure in our lifetime will be very different from what our brothers and sisters endure right now and have endured throughout the course of history. Today, there are brothers and sisters in places like Gaza, places like Israel, places like right here in our own country who are enduring affliction and religious persecution, perhaps right even under our own noses and we don't know it. There are Christians in Ukraine who are running for their life and gathering as the church today, wondering if a bomb's going to hit the building. We have to be so careful when we talk about suffering, but we still need to talk about it. See, because you know what doesn't make any sense to me, and yet it reveals the heart of the Father? He cares about what you went through that was hard this week, and he cares about those in Gaza and Israel and Ukraine. He somehow has the capacity to not flippantly disregard you and me when we come to him with our problems. He doesn't say, hey, if you knew the prayers I was getting out of the Middle East and if you knew the prayers I was getting out of Africa, you'd keep your mouth shut. He doesn't do that. I do that every week with my kids. Every week. When they come to me and interrupt and I'm like, I'm in the middle of discipling a really hard situation, I'm like, do you know how important the work your dad is doing right now? Don't, don't bring me like your toy broke. Who cares? You're lucky you have a toy. You know what I mean? And you have other ones. Are, are you picking up what I'm throwing down? This is how much the Heavenly Father loves you. See, so we should not compare our suffering and grow entitled and believe we should be listened to because it's my suffering. We should be mindful of our brothers and sisters, but we shouldn't belittle the Heavenly Father's love and think that we shouldn't bring him what is ailing us just because it's not the worst thing ever. It's amazing how he loves his family. We should be very careful. And even James, I think, highlights this in the beginning of his letter. James chapter 1, verse 2. He says, Now consider it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. 
We spend so much time with like belaboring that J- James calls suffering joy. We miss, I know I have, that he says various kinds. That means some of y'all are going through different things than others, but we're all given the same charter. We should all count suffering as a joy, even though the suffering we face is different or various kinds. It's not all the same. It all bring, because it all brings us together. The evil one would love for you to not share your pain with your group or with your church family or with a brother or sister because you think someone else has it worse off. He would love for you to just carry that yourself and to believe that you can figure it out and you don't need to share that burden. But then you rob the church of its opportunity to shoulder your burdens and to carry your burdens with you. Right? Don't take that from me. Don't take that from your brothers and sisters. I need to not take that from you that we need to be God's people that shoulder our burdens together, even as God in Christ walks with us in our burdens. With that said, we'd probably do well to, to give some clarity about why it is that we suffer or why it is that it is hard, to give us some categories. I want to do this briefly because I'm realizing we're running out of time. <clears throat> Imagine that. Four, four reasons why I think that we suffer and that ultimately if we see each other in these various kinds of suffering, we won't compare and contrast suffering. We'll actually have compassion on one another and it will draw us closer together. The first reason, see, sometimes, excuse me, sometimes we suffer simply because the world is broken. Sometimes we suffer simply because the world is broken. The Christian story is one that begins with the Creator making everything good and then we sin and, and the whole thing is knocked off its axis. Right? The whole thing is broken and busted. And so then we see this ripple effect throughout all of creation. We are all in some measure to blame for that. And in another measure, a lot of things happen to us that are not our fault because the world is simply broken. And it actually is not any one person's fault. See, a broken world means that we will endure hardship that is not a direct result of anything wrong you have done. It's just because the world is broken. Think about sickness or aging or something so stupid that... (laughs) Like our warm drinks always get cold and our cold drinks always get warm. How frustrating is that? The opposite of what we desire is happening. Did anyone do anything wrong? No, the world's just broken. The world's just broken that my hot coffee does not stay hot, right? This is my lament this morning. It's all brokenness. It's all simply giving us a picture that things are not as they should be. By the way, that is not to say that in the age to come, I don't know what happens with temperature in the age to come, just for clarity. I don't, I don't know. Secondly, though, other times we suffer because of sin. This is really hard for many of us modern folks to believe in. We can go, okay, the world is broken. Sometimes things don't work out. But, you know, sometimes your life is hard because you've sinned and you're rebelling against God. Me too. See, we suffer because of you. We suffer because of me. We suffer because of ourselves. Sometimes our lives are hard because we're sinners We make bad decisions, whether accidentally or willfully, and these choices make our lives a lot harder. It leads to suffering and consequence. Often we suffer because we not only do evil things, but even the way we respond when that violation is made plain to us is also sinful. The thing that happens for me, I don't know about you, I get real defensive and I don't trust the other person. Even though in my head I'm like, they're so right, but I don't want to let them have this win. I don't want to let them have this in my heart. I don't want them to see me broken and weak and busted and imperfect. And so then, kind of like King David, unrepentant sin always leads to more sin. And so I've not only been deceptive, but now I'm being defensive that you've seen that I'm deceptive and I'm building up a wall that breaks down our relationship. 
This is why the Proverbs say that when a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. In other words, what do we do? We get angry at God for having such high standards, right, when we sin. This leads to suffering. Suffering is not always your fault, but sometimes it is. Sometimes our suffering is not always my fault, but sometimes it is. And I think what we need to do in those moments is to confess our sin, to confess and acknowledge and admit what we have done. See, sometimes we suffer because the world is broken. Sometimes we suffer because of sin. Sometimes we suffer because of someone else's sin, because someone has sinned against us. See, not because the world is broken, not because we've done anything, but because someone else has sinned against us. That's Job's life. That's the life uh, and story of a man who was left for dead in the parable of the Good Samaritan. He didn't do anything wrong. He was attacked. He was violated. He was left for dead. Isn't this the story of Jesus, who had no sin in him, and yet he was the one who endured every affliction of humanity? See, Jesus responded to this great need of humanity by allowing himself to take the position even of a victim. This is why Diane Langberg says that Jesus is the most traumatized one, the one who has endured all affliction that you and I could ever possibly imagine by bearing our sins and our folly of the entire human race on the cross. He was despised and rejected by men, Isaiah says, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Therefore, when we are victimized, when we are sinned against, we can remember that Jesus not only identifies with us in our unjust treatment, but since he put shame to shame on the cross, we also find power and cleansing in him. See, so sometimes life is hard or suffering happens because the world is broken. Sometimes it's because of my sin or your sin. Sometimes it's because we're sinned against. And lastly, sometimes we suffer because God is good. Because God is good. If you've been tracking in our Hebrews reading guide, you know that we've been reflecting through the week on the fact that a father, a loving father, disciplines his children. Discipline a lot of times feels like suffering. It feels like pain and discomfort. And see, many of life's difficulties are by design. It's God's kindness. God has intentionally shaped the world in such a way that effort would be required to accomplish a significant change and progress and reward. See, from the beginning, do you know that Adam had a job before the fall? He, he learned to toil and to work hard and even to labor before brokenness came. So when we embrace uh, some of our suffering, even as a gift from God, we'll learn not only to become more collaborative and smarter and most skilled, but stronger in Him. And not just in our work. This happens in parenting. It's by definition hard because it teaches us more about becoming our Heavenly Father more loving like he is. It's in our relationships can sometimes be hard just because they're relationships. It's just two people, right? And so we should be careful about casting blame on one another. And sometimes God has put someone in your life and hasn't sinned against you at all and you have not sinned against them, but you've been put in each other's life to help each other mature and grow up in Christ. And that's hard because whenever we're maturing, there are things in us that are dying and changing and transforming. See, we suffer for all kinds of reasons, and the Lord wants us to cast all of those cares upon Him. Why? Because it's more important than someone else's? No. Because the, you have the greatest bit of suffering? No, because He cares for you. He loves you. That's what First Peter 5 teaches us. See, in a broken world, we're drawn together as we wait on Jesus to renew all things. And in our sin, we're drawn together 
as we are sanctified together by grace. In injustice, we are drawn together, even when we are sinned against, we are drawn together in our lament and our need for healing. And in God's goodness, we are drawn together as spiritual siblings who find identity and inheritance in our Heavenly Father. See, this is the beauty of suffering together. No matter why we are suffering, we are drawn together for God's glory and our good. That's why Paul is greeting these people. Not because all of their suffering is the same, but because in the midst of their suffering, they are all being drawn together to be more like Christ. The final thread that we see in Paul's greeting is a thread of shared grace. Notice in verse 5, Romans chapter 16 again. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epaphroditus, maybe, but Panias, yeah, you know, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Paul s- shares, <coughs> excuse me, salvation with this man. He was the first Christian in Asia, likely in modern Turkey. Can you hand me that water right behind you? <coughs> This is likely the first convert in uh, Asia and modern-day Turkey. And then look at verse 7. Greet Andronicus and uh, Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well-known in the apostles, and they were uh, in Christ before me. Before Paul is a Christian, this couple is following Jesus. And now they have this shared conversion story. He says, some are approved in verse 10, chosen in verse 13. And he says, greet all of the saints in verse 15. See, the threads of shared work and of shared suffering hold this diverse group of people together, but more than anything, they are held together by the thread of shared grace. They are held together by the thread of shared grace. See, this grace is expressed in a number of different ways throughout the Scriptures, but in particular how it relates to our work and our suffering. You see, Jesus actually enters into the work with us. He enters into the various vocations and callings that you and I have. Jesus takes on flesh to engage the work under the work, to foster intimacy and relationship, to share truth and beauty of the kingdom. Jesus dies in our place and for our sins, therefore doing what? Engaging in the work through the work to produce this kingdom reward and this kingdom that is here already and yet not yet fully expressed. So he is under the work in relationships. He is through the work in what he has produced. And he is also over the work. Everything he did was for what? The glory of his heavenly Father. Don't you love this, that you and I in our work get to identify with the grace of Jesus who willingly identified with us in our work, under the work, through the work, and over the work. That's our shared grace. Not only so, but this grace is also expressed in our shared suffering. You see, as Bell Hooks described For us, there is a healing that happens only in community, especially when that community shares suffering. To know that we are not alone, to know that we are understood is powerful, but it's incomplete. That's not the fullness of our healing. Seeing someone with the same wounds is comforting, but it does not necessarily mean that your wound is healed. It's part of the story, but not the full expression of it. German theologian Jürgen Moltmann explains the sufferings of Christ on the cross are not just his sufferings. He writes, they are the sufferings of the poor and weak, which Jesus shares in his own body and in his own soul in solidarity with them. 
Christ identifies God with the victims of violence and identifies the victims with God so that they are put under God's protection and with him are given the rights of which they have been deprived. In other words, Christ's shared wounds are the only wounds which bring full healing because in his suffering, he was putting an end to suffering itself. That's our shared grace. And we can have confidence that one day this work will be complete and full. And one day all shall be well and this suffering will be no more. Why? Because we see Jesus in our work and we see in him the fullness of the work that he has completed. Because Jesus is in our suffering and in him we see the end of suffering take place through the cross. Remember, Paul is writing a diverse collection of people. Some are women, some are men, some are rich, some are poor. Some have social clout, everybody knows who they are, and others, no one knows their name. Some are slaves, some are free, some are Jewish, and others are Gentiles, yet they are all being held together by three, three threads, three strands, if you will. The thread of shared work, the thread of shared suffering, the thread of shared grace. See, sometimes we think that our work is more important than someone else's. Or we think that our calling is less significant. And in that, we need to remind each other of our shared work. Other times we think that our suffering is more or less than someone else's. It matters or it doesn't matter based on comparison. In that moment, we need to remember our shared suffering. Other times, still, we are tempted to think that we need grace more. In other words, we're battling shame. Or we need grace less. In other words, we're battling pride than perhaps someone else. And in those moments, we must reaffirm our shared grace. Church, when we do that... I think we will find that despite all of the differences and beauties of diversity that we behold together as God's people, as church in the square in particular, we will realize what holds us together and what makes us one, God in Christ himself. Let's pray and ask for his help. Father, we thank you for this reminder and we need your help to live it out. Our hearts are prone to comparison. Our hearts are prone to judgment. Our hearts can feel overwhelmed with the work we have and the suffering that we endure. And so would you lift us today with the goodness of your grace. I pray for those who love their work. I pray for those who hate their job. I love for those who are looking for work. I pray for those Father, who are trying to understand the connection between their work and your good news, your gospel, and your kingdom coming. I pray for those who are suffering. I pray for those who are overwhelmed by the, the burden of sin and shame. I pray for those who, not for anything that they have done, are being attacked, are being hurt, are being mistreated. I pray for those who are just being challenged in relationship right now. And I ask that in all of those spaces, with the power and beauty and truth of your Son, show up in real space and real time for your glory and their good. I pray that for my sisters and brothers and for myself so that we would be one even as you, Father, Son, and Spirit, are one. We pray that for the good of our city and the good of our world. In Jesus' name, amen.